This episode of the Mr. Martin Maths Podcast is proudly supported by Casio and their lovely ClassPad platform. Now, what is ClassPad, I hear you say? Well, it's the new Casio web-based emulator platform, and I'll tell you what, it's flipping brilliant. ClassPad incorporates all models of the ClassWiz emulators, so you can project your calculator nice and big on your screen so your students can see, but it also does so much more. Now, I've been playing around with it this morning, and I'll tell you what, you can produce graphs, investigate geometric shapes, generate data sets, form number lines, and tons more besides. And I'll tell you what I found the best, and that is each of these mathematical representations can be displayed next to each other on an infinite canvas alongside the calculator, allowing your students to see the connections between them. Now, I'm delighted to say that Casio are long-term sponsors of the podcast this year, so I look forward to telling you more about the wonderful work they're doing to support the teaching and learning of maths. And if you're a teacher that's currently juggling the transition from older Casio models to the new fancy ClassWiz range, then the ClassPad emulator will allow you to quickly and easily switch between old and new calculators and model the maths appropriately for your students, whichever Casio calculator they have in their hands. So to find out about all the incredible support available to UK teachers, here's the place you need to go. Education.casio.co.uk forward slash Mr. Hyphen Barton hyphen maths. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This is the ninth in the series of monthly conversations with my good friend and podcasting rival, Ollie Lovell. Each time we reflect upon three things we've tried, seen or been thinking about in the last month. It's a good one this month, you know. We discuss, firstly, why change needs deep understanding. Secondly, the power of using critical evidence during CPD. Third, is making feedback into detective work, this is Dylan Williams' idea, by the way, really a good idea. Fourth, my new favourite, the daring or during effect. Five, what have you got worse at? And six, sir, I need the toilet. Just a reminder to sign up for my two newsletters, Tips for Teachers and Edie, both completely free for more educational goodness in your inboxes each week. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy. Ollie Lovell, happy new year, mate. How are you? Very well, Craig. How are you doing? Very, very good. Very good. How was your first Christmas as a new dad? Oh, mate, it was great. It was, I mean, Ada absolutely loved the uh, wrapping paper around her presents. <laughs> so that was a real highlight. And yeah, I managed to, managed to get out, go on a bit of a bushwalk and do a few other things. So, uh, and lots of family time, obviously, with the grandma, grandpa too. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a magical time. How about you? How now, was last, well, just before last time, do you remember one time we spoke, you had all the family around and it was quite a stressful thing. Have you, have you got to grips with that now? Is it a bit more, bit more relaxed, a bit more fun? We're starting, we're starting to work it out. 
I think, I mean, that, that was the first, that was the first family visit. And when we were all just trying to sort, sort things out with Ada, so I was very bit, bit intense, but, um, yeah, where it's, it's all, it's all wonderful now and it's great, great to spend time with, um, with my parents and, and Ada and my brother was down there as well and his new girlfriend. So it was all, uh, it was all kicking off as you like to say, Craig. Nice one. Mate. <laughs> nice one. How about you, mate? How's, how's your festive season? Yeah, it was good. It was good. So Isaac's four now so nearly five five next week so it was he really got into christmas this time he was dead excited every morning he'd wake up tell me it's 31 days to christmas 30 days to christmas blah 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 and then we introduced for the first time this flipping elf on the shelf and we've been putting him off for a while but he's doing my head in this elf so for if listeners aren't aware of how this elf works you, I, I, I feel you, you know you're doing well because you've basically this elf he's up to all sorts well I, ne- I mean you're a lot younger than me all i never had this elf knocking around was he knocking around when you were young no, no it's no. definitely a new thing i'd say and he's hard work it means like every night you've got to think of something creative that this elf can be up to so sometimes he's eating the wheat a bit sometimes he's swinging from the christmas tree he'd knock the angel off the christmas tree that was that was a highlight but yeah, it's just, just, I find it quite a bit stressful, to be honest with you, trying to think what the flipping at this elf's going to be up to. And sometimes like, Isaac could be judging it, saying, oh, he's not done so much, has he, today? I'm like, oh, give me a flipping break, mate. This is the <laughs> last thing I need. But anyway, so it was good. But we had a fun Christmas. Yeah, lots of family and, and everything. And oh, a little teaser for your Patreons. We're going to be talking New Year's resolutions in the bonus episode, which is exclusive if you're, a mem- if you're one of Ollie's patrons. So... Stick around for that, and if you're not one of Ollie's patrons, maybe that can be your little New Year's treat. Treat yourself to to that subscription. There you go. That was a good little plug, wasn't it? That was, that was good. Thank you for that, mate. It wasn't even uh, what is even suggested. But I'm actually really keen to hear about your New Year's resolutions because I know you, you know, you take life pretty seriously, and you're always thinking yeah. about how you can improve. So I'm um, looking forward to that. I did want to share one thing, and this is uh, I was going to share this in the patron part, but this is a maybe an early early review. Uh, or early mm-hmm. sneak peek. So I always get outgunned by with you, by you, Craig, with your massive water bottle. Can you please bring that into shot? If you if you have it, yes, it's always there. Yes, it's a new there. one now. So it's a, oh, new, it's a new, one. new guy, new uh, new one, but same size. So same size. Holy moly! Or just yeah, it's yeah. just yeah, ginormous. I don't even know how you pick that up with one hand, mate. It's how many liters <laughs> is it? Ah, uh, it's. Do you know? I don't even know. It's. Oh, yeah, I do. So two and a half, this one. Two, two and, and a half. half. I go through about two, two of them a day. Wow, that's full on. Um, and you changed to more uh, more muted colours after I kept on bursting into laughter every time you <laughs> well, brought that like. I'll tell you why. Let me, let, me tell, let me tell you why. It wasn't through choice. So I hadn't washed it for about six months and it was getting all like mouldy inside. So I put some hot boiling water into it to try and wash it and it just melted the whole thing collapsed wow. it. so it's it's a goner so yeah i've got wow. this this new guy now well inspired by you craig i actually got not <laughs> one but two big drink nice. bottles to sit next to me I, I use them on a bushwalk but they, if people know nalgene they're two nalgene bottles two one and a half liters so um it's been great because i was just finding like i'd be working at the desk for hours and i'd finish a liter and then I keep on going. I yeah. keep on picking up the empty bottle, That's and I'd be it. like, "I'm obviously thirsty, but I just would like be in the zone and like just not not do it." So that was good. And one cool thing about about these ones, Craig, you can actually use these as hot water bottles when you're camping as well. So they can deal with uh they can deal with boiling water. So uh, 
Hey, this isn't some like six-figure sponsorship deal you've signed with these guys. It should be, shouldn't it? Now, Gene, if you if you want to sponsor my podcast, now, Gene, please reach out. I'd love some more some more water bottles. There you go. Right, mate. Well, let's dive in. So for listeners who aren't aware, uh, every month, Ollie and I get together and we share three things we've been thinking about or trying over uh, the course of the last month or so. No idea what Ollie's going to come up with. So what's your first one today, mate? Thanks, Craig. First one is something I've been pondering since um, I've been trying to implement a whole heap of things, both personally and um, in schools and things like that. And it's all, and it relates back to some, some stuff that you've been doing recently as well. So it's the idea that... Uh, change is only sustainable if supported by deep understanding i think that's true i think that's true let's uh let's 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 throw the idea around a little bit so i was one area i was thinking about this was you you've introduced me in recent podcasts to the huberman protocol craig mm-hmm. it's you know it's this kind of five or six day kind of training protocol where you do all the different things you have saunas you you run you do heavy weights for your chest and your back and your legs and all those kinds of things and chatting to you craig as i'm sure lots of listeners did i got really excited and i you know put it made it made a plan worked out where it was going to all fit in my week i think i did about joined a gym i think i did about two days of it and then i just found found that i wasn't finding time for it and and i was thinking why 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 am i not doing this and i was like i don't really understand like why i'm doing each of these days like why it all fits um and so i i I dove a little bit deeper and that definitely helped. And I've, I've started to build some some more of the facets uh, into my life. I'm not, definitely not following the protocol. But that was one good example. Um, another uh, another related example is the idea of like eating less sugar, which is something that's, you know, hard for many of us. But we generally think it's, you know, it's good for your health to eat less sugar. But I found out about the way through um, what's his, Outlive, what's his name? Peter Tear. Peter T's recent book, Outlive, it's about, he explained about insulin resistance and how it actually develops over time uh, as re- in response to like, you know, high high insulin spikes in your blood sugar, et cetera, et cetera. And that helped me, that has helped me, I think, subsequently to think, you know, when I'm staring that piece of chocolate down in the cupboard, well, actually, you know, I, I kind of understand a little bit more deeply what's going on here. Um, it's also, it's it's been a topic of discussion, the idea of un- like insight and deep understanding underpinning sustainable action in a bunch of discussions I've been having recently with uh, Josh Goodrich over at StepLab. We've been talking about the formats for coaching and the importance within that coaching conversation of, of ensuring that the coachee understands the why behind the technique or the step or the strategy that you're trying to support them to use. Because if, if not, there's a chance they're going to change it in a way that's going to render it ineffectual. Um, and and I think you know you know for for your work my work and also just teachers more broadly trying to support students to, to to change their behavior and things like that, helping really driving towards that understanding I think um, is a crucial step that we we sh- we shouldn't ignore. Now I'm not saying that understanding is going to necessarily be enough, um, and you know the work of McDaniel and Einstein is really good on this front, talking using like a knowledge belief commitment planning framework they say you need knowledge which is kind of the understanding but you also need belief belief that the strategy is going to specifically work for you uh you need a commitment to the strategy often they take a lot like you might you might know it's not know it's good for you know how it works you might believe that it's going to work for you but you haven't got the commitment to kind of overcome uh the the mental or physical challenge to actually do it and then you need planning you need like a concrete plan to put into place and when you have all those four things then you're more likely but i I think at the heart of it and something that's often missed is 
base is this foundation of a, a really solid understanding of the why and the mechanism. So it's something that I've been thinking more about in, in changes that I've been trying to make in my own life. And I, and I thought it might be something that listeners might find interesting to ponder. Are there changes I'm trying to make? And if so, do I, do I really deeply understand why I'm trying to do this and the likely impacts of it and the likely impacts of not doing it? Um, so yeah, that's my takeaway number one. It's good that mate, right? And so a few things, a few things here. So first, as, as often as the case with, with me and you, we seem to be thinking along similar lines. So I'm going to actually bump up the second thing I was going to talk about. I'm going to bump it up to number one because it follows kind of directly on um, from this. As I'll kind of tease tease in a second. Uh, just two kind of two reflections, both kind of personal one and then kind of professional one. So so. I, I'm similar to you. It's only now, if we go back to this Huberman thing, the more I read and the more I listen, the more I can then tweak things and figure out what are the key active ingredients that I need to build in and how I build them into kind of busy lives. So, for example, I tend to be away two or three nights a week, um, visiting various different schools. So what out of that protocol can I actually do in my hotel room and how's that going to be as, how can I get that as effective as I can? Because obviously it's going to be more effective in the gym, but what can I do now I fully understand how it works or better understand how it works to, 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 to tap into it so I get those benefits. So you're absolutely right. I really like that change relies or, or is it improved by deep understanding. But the thing I, I'm interested here all, because as I say, this feeds into what I wanted to talk to you about, is let's imagine you um, are doing a CPD session. You've got teachers and this isn't part of a long-term kind of coaching program. So potentially you might not see these teachers again. You've been, you've been brought in to do a keynote or some training or something like that. How do you how do you get the teachers to the stage where they understand enough that they're kind of wanting to make this change? Because for me, one way to do it is I try and get everything kind of grounded in evidence. I'll try and cite some research that's based upon it. And for some teachers, that kind of does it. That's, ah, right, okay, I see that. Okay, I'm a bit more willing to kind of buy into this and try and make the change. For other teachers, as I'll, as I'll talk about a little bit later, I think getting them to do a bit of reflection on their own practice and realize maybe that the need is there. That's the thing that kind of brings about the change. So it's not understanding why this change kind of works. Generally, it's understanding the need for them personally to perhaps make a change. But it's hard, isn't it? Let's say you've got an hour, 90 minutes or something like that. What have you found to be the most effective ways to give teachers this understanding that is required to make the change? Mm. Great, great, great question, Craig. First of all, I definitely agree with what you were saying there about that motivational piece. And I have found and I've heard from multiple people that one of the most powerful things you can do is start by getting people to reflect upon a current challenge that they are facing in their classroom. And that somehow relates to the kind of thing you're going to talk about. And if you are if you are giving PD that's actually valuable, it's going to in some way relate to a challenge that they're currently having in the classroom. And if you can use that as a, as a springboard, that's going to be um, incredibly helpful. A concrete example of that was when I was interviewing uh, Sam Gibbs about uh, concept-based uh, English curricula. And she said that the way they started the change process at the school at the school that she was working at, she said, you know, what's the difference between what our how our less successful English students approach English and how our more successful English students approach English? 
and it came out pretty quickly that like the the more successful English students did kind of see the concepts behind. They were able to make links between texts. Uh, they were able to like extend themes and talk about the way that characters represent the ideas of authors rather than just that they're characters in and of themselves, things like that. And it turns out that all these things that, you know, th this, this challenge that teachers face of helping less successful English students be more successful English students is grounded in this, this lack of conceptual understanding, which then feeds into Sam's work. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a key thing in terms of the motivational part. In terms of helping teachers kind of gain that deep understanding, I think there's two things that I do with varying levels of success um, in like a, a single shot PD session. Um, one is really focus on a few key points and just kind of hammer them home. So. My, the CLT session that I run frequently is called Four Big Ideas of Cognitive Load Theory, right? And there's four ideas and I, I tell people what they are at the start. I go through each of them in turn, you know, give people opportunities to discuss them, reflect on them, etc. Go through them at the end, then I quiz people on them, right? So just really being clear, these are the things we're learning today, uh, I think is really, really helpful. The other thing, which is actually really hard to do in a single PD session, and it's also challenging because often it brings up challenges and you end up feeling like you need to be more of a teacher than is often socially acceptable in like a PD session. But that is basically just, uh, you know, soliciting feedback or soliciting work from people and then providing feedback on that. Because And, and that's something I've been trying to do more and more because that is really, when you get people to try to apply it in the session and you look at how they do that, that's when you go, oh, I mean, it's, the, it's the, the number one, the golden rule of teaching isn't a check for understanding. When you actually do that, it's like, oh, they're getting this part, but they're not getting this part. And that's how you can progressively improve your PD sessions over time. I, I've, I, I've really noticed this recently because um, I've got some new stuff coming out on, on classroom slash behavior management soon. And we've been running some PD sessions online for people. We ran one for Teach for Australia recently, myself and um, Dr. Mark Daly, who, who have been doing this work with. And just popping into the... Uh, breakout rooms in between when people are like scripting their classroom management stuff you're like oh I didn't even think I can see how this coming up with that based upon what I said but like that's not what I meant at all and so you in the next session you can preempt it and so one concrete example of that is you know we say like with an entry routine students enter silently um, you know well there's, there's lots of different ways to do it but we say uh, at, use, use a threshold and get give three clear instructions on the way in. So it might be like, enter silently, um, take your assigned seat and start this starter within 60 seconds or something like that. And we might say, it doesn't really matter what your three things are, just make them really clear. And then we saw some teachers in this plan, they were saying like, come in and sit silently and wait till I give you the instructions. And so, you know, it might take a minute or two for students to come into the classroom and they're expecting them to sit silently. That's like, I mean, that totally makes sense based upon the guidance that we provided, but that's probably not going to be super effective. So now we kind of preempt that. Something that people have planned in the past is this, you want to make sure there's something for students to get cracking with just as soon as they come in. Come in. So yeah, I'd say those three things are probably some of the things I've been attempting to do to make PD more effective um, in line with, with your question there. So to recap them, they're grounded in a current challenge. Um, ensure that you've got a few key points and you just drill them home over and over again. and check for understanding and if you can do that that's really going to increase the, the probability of it being effective it's great that mate just just one thing um, back on that so 
you've as you know you've inspired me to go big into this idea of rehearsal right so i'm i'm the rehearsal king these days every time i'm doing coaching people are rehearsing but when we're doing cpd people are rehearsing so i'll give you an example that kind of builds on this where i think this led to deep understanding so i was working with a school was it my i i I lose track of the days these days it was either the start this week or the end of last week God, god only knows and we were working on um explanations modeling this was kind of day three of a series of visits and we'd we'd kind of nailed mass participation so it felt and we teachers were getting really good at checking for understanding with whiteboards and so on so it felt like the right time that we could really start working on explanations so um i discussed like a, a simplified model of what we've talked about in the past where when we do the i do and um, we're going to do a lots of checking for listening so i did a i did a model at the start so i i the people the members of the department with the kids and I did how I would teach the kids to expand brackets. So um, I was doing the modeling and every time I said something, I checked the kids were listening. So I'd say something like, so today we're going to uh, learn how to multiply out a, a single bracket. And then I'd pause and I'd say, what are we doing today? Pause, Ollie, classic kind of cold call. So I did this model and I thought, well, everyone's nailed that. That's That's great. So then I got them to rehearse. So what they had to do is I had to think of something they were teaching next week um, and script their kind of explanation and then rehearse with their colleague how they would do these checks for listening. And then I got the feedback. I was wandering around listening to them and it was amazing. So the first three people I listened to, they were doing some checks for listening, but they were mixing in checks for understanding. They were asking kids things that they'd not been taught. And I realized that I thought I'd made that clear, but because I hadn't provided like an example and a non-example and so on, and we hadn't kind of dig, dug into that, exactly what you're saying there, what they were doing made perfect sense to them based on what I'd said to them, but it wasn't quite what I'd meant them to do. So I then stopped it and I brought everyone back together and we dug into it and so on, and then it was absolutely fine. Then they knew the difference between a check for listening and a check for understanding. But without that feedback... You know, I had no sense, to link back to your original point, I had no sense of how well they'd actually understood what I was talking about. So the change that I wanted them to make and they wanted to make is probably not going to have been as effective. But now, so every CPD session I do, I try and get this element of rehearsal in there so I can get this feedback and whether it's a case of taking a picture of it or whatever it is just so that I can get that data as to whether things are going the right way. And also then people can learn from each other and so on. So yeah, thank you for that. It's, it's, yeah, it's really kind of, I think, fingers crossed it's improved my CPD, but certainly it feels like it's, it's more effective anyway, if that makes sense. That's great. And I mean, that, that is actually a benefit of rehearsal that I haven't given enough weight to, which is the ability of the, if it's in a CPD session or the ability of the, facilitated to actually get around and check for understanding as a function of that so yeah thanks for helping me realize that as well craig that's great what's your, I'm what's your doing, number one? Um, uh, well just a little teaser for some so next is it next week or the week after i'm doing a whole day in wales gonna be about 250 teachers there and we're doing explanations so i'm gonna get everyone rehearsing it so i'll try and take a picture or a little video or something and I'll, I'll send it on to you just so you can see kind of uh mass rehearsals in I would love to see just that. to see how well I've how much I've grown I'd love the, to see that years. mate that'd be great <laughs> right so number two so I've bumped mine up here uh, um, for it was was my number two now it's my number one so 
Talking about coaching, talking about rehearsal and all that kind of thing, one of the biggest changes I've made, now I've started kind of coaching regularly, is this idea of critical evidence, right? And I got this from, from Adam Boxer's kind of hypothesis model. So for listeners who perhaps haven't heard us talk about this before, whenever I watch a lesson, um, first thing I'm trying to do is just kind of get a general sense of what's going on. Then I'm looking for some specific things I can praise the teacher for. But then I'm forming a hypothesis of something that perhaps isn't going as well as the teacher would like it or could potentially go. And then I try and get some critical evidence to support or refute that hypothesis. And as we've discussed in the past, and particularly in your episode that you did with Josh, that moment in the coaching session where you present the hypothesis and support it with that critical evidence, it tends to be the moment where you get that buy-in. It's the kind of like aha moment. And without that critical evidence, it's kind of your word against theirs. You know, I can say things like, I don't think your explanation was clear. And they're like, well, I think it actually was clear. Well, where'd you go from there? But if you say, I don't think your explanation was clear. And I spoke to three kids and here's what they said, or here's pictures from their book and so on and so forth. You get them on board. So put that to one side. What I've now started doing is critical evidence in CPD sessions when I'm working with departments. So I'll give you a concrete example of this. So I was in a school last week and I was watching lessons all morning and I noticed they're due now, so the kind of start of the lesson, I didn't think it was all that effective. I didn't think kids were taking it seriously. I thought there was a lack of effort from kids. And also, because of the way the teachers were checking for kids' understanding by essentially cold calling or asking for volunteers, I, I thought there was a good number of kids in each class who were not understanding what was going on in the do now, but the teacher wasn't picking up on it. So I thought to myself, how again, this is why it links in perfectly with what you said first. How am I going to get people to buy into this? Because what I would have done in the past is kind of just state this as a bit of a hypothesis and perhaps shown some examples from other schools and so on. But I thought, you know what? Why bother with that? Let's go for let's go for the kill here with this. So what I did throughout the mornings, I'm taking pictures left, right, and center, right? So in the CPD session, and I ran this by the head of department, just in case this would be an absolute disaster, but she reckoned it was it was worth worth a go. So I opened up the CPD and I said, I, I give them loads of like praise and stuff. Um, and this is what I do with my days. I watch lessons in the morning, get the department together in the afternoon. We do some based on what I've seen that morning. So I said, look, you're doing loads of things. Absolutely brilliant. But what I want to talk about with you this afternoon is your do now. So I'm going to ask you two questions. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. Two. So first question was, I just said, turn to the person next to you and just talk them through the do now that you've just done, the most recent do now, and how you check your kids' understanding. So I just got them to just kind of, so they could at least visualize some of the concrete that they did. And then I asked them, this is my favorite question. So then I said, now what I want you to do is consider how easy would it be for a student in that do now to either lack effort or lack understanding and you not pick up on it. And some of the teachers who were quite kind of open were like, oh yeah, you know what, there's a decent chance there, like, you know, now I think about it, blah, blah, blah. But I could see some teachers were like, nah, not in my lessons, my lessons, my kids all do the do now, blah, blah, blah. So then, and I was nervous, Ollie, my heart was going at this point, right? So I said, right, okay, that's fantastic. I said, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show you some examples, examples from 
your lessons this morning. And I made sure I didn't just have examples from one member of staff because that'd be horrendous, right? I had stuff. And I, and I also made sure I had stuff from the head of department. I had one from the deputy head teacher who was also a maths teacher. So it wasn't, you know, everyone was in it together here. And I also said, look, if you'd have come in my classroom for the first 15 years of my career, you'd have been able to take far worse pictures than this. So I said, right, here's some examples of kids who I don't think are putting effort in. So I had three or four different pictures from different lessons where kids had just done nothing during the do now or also the classic where they'd done nothing waited till the teacher had gone through the answers and then just started copying them down and you could see like there was a bit of kind of shock on the on the teachers faces and then I said here's some examples of kids who are I think are demonstrating a lack of understanding so there I had pictures of kids who got a question wrong had corrected it like in red pen or green pen as as they were told to do and then I'd given them a similar problem to do and they couldn't do it. So I'd taken a picture of that as well. So that critical evidence, that was the moment that you could see I got departmental buy-in. Now, without that, I reckon I, maybe half the members of the department would have been with me because they'd have trusted me and maybe reflected on it. But the rest of them, it's very, again, it's my word against theirs. No, actually, my do now is fine, blah, 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 blah. Now, again, it could have gone the other way, right? You could imagine for some teachers, this would be the worst thing. The, the, and the, the shutters would have come up. But that's the same in a coaching session, right? So you've got to know how to manage it. And I find the way to do it is to, again, admit honestly that I would have done this for, you know, 15 years. You'd have seen this in, in my classroom. To say that this is a common thing for schools all around the country. And also, as I say, to kind of spread it, to make sure you've got examples from as many different people as possible. And also your kind of high status people within the department. But it's been a bit of a revelation for me. Maybe this is the most obvious thing you've ever heard in your life. But doing CPD almost kind of in real time, watching somebody in the morning and then the afternoon, you've got that critical evidence. I've, I've just found, I've done it three times now. And each time I just think I've just got that feeling. I've got that extra buy-in from staff that I wouldn't have otherwise. So I just thought I'd share that with you all just as a kind of different, yeah, kind of a different form of coaching kind of on, on a, on a bigger scale, but just as a, as a way of, yeah, CPD. I just thought you, you might be interested in, in, in mm. that. That's, that's, that's beautiful, Craig. I absolutely love that. Um, I, a follow-up question I'm, I'm really curious to ask is you've done this at three schools. What were the, issues in those three schools so yeah, you talk, talk through one of them what were the other two yeah so it's it's similar things right so it's um <laughs> it's, it's always the case i'm going to write a newsletter on this it's it's always almost always that the kids either aren't listening or that the teacher thinks they understand but they they don't so it's tends to be that low participation ratio it's it's the, the classic thing all the time so in two of the schools it was in the do now and in the other school it was in the explanation so the teacher was giving really good explanations but was not checking kids were listening so at the end of those explanations kids were then trying to do like the, the example problem pair they were trying to do the we do and they were getting it wrong left right and center and the teacher couldn't understand why so yeah it was lack of listening and a kind of lack of gathering evidence uh, throughout the do now. And they're quite nice things that you can gather evidence. And it's only because I've been doing this coaching for a long time, well, long, relatively uh, long time now. And in every coaching session, I'm now, I think I'm at the stage where I'm pretty good in a lesson of kind of gathering the kind of evidence that, that's going to make a difference. 
It's just I'd never quite translated that to think, well, let's do this departmental-wide and collate that evidence together and, and, and so on. So, yeah, that it's yeah, it's been things that it's been relatively easy to gather evidence to support the hypothesis, if that makes that's, sense. Yeah, that's great. And that makes a lot of sense. And that mirrors with what um, or echoes what uh, Adam Boxer said when you had him on about coaching because he goes into schools as well and does a similar thing. Um, it sounds like, and he just said, yeah, vast majority of schools, kids just aren't listening to the teacher. <laughs> There's your number one challenge. <laughs> Attention, you know, <laughs> attention is number one and it's 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 often where things fall down. So that's great. That, and, you know, like it's a wish, it's, it could be a wishy-washy thing to say, right? You can imagine without the evidence, if you say to someone, look, I don't think your kids are listening, like nobody wants to admit that, right? They're mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, of course they're listening. And it's the, I wrote a post, I wrote a newsletter recently called Poor Proxies for Listening. And it's the classic thing. If your kids are quiet, looking at you, nodding, and also the classic, they tell you they're listening. I see this all the time. Like a teacher says, Ollie, are you listening? Well, what the hell's Ollie going to say? You're not going to say no, are you? Like, yeah, yeah, of course I'm listening. So all these poor proxies for listening that teachers rely upon, again, it's just, it's problematic. So without that critical evidence that kids are not listening, how on earth are you going to get by in it? And that's hard enough one-to-one, but if you've got a department and you've got two or three people are like, well, my kids are listening, mm. it's very difficult to, to inst- instigate change from there. So that's why gathering this evidence and getting it from as many different classrooms as possible, I, I think is potentially quite powerful. That's great. And, and I think what you were saying about how to deliver that feedback and that evidence in a way that lands well, and you had three tips which I'll reiterate for listeners because I think they're really valuable, you know, say this is something I have struggled with in the past, which is in the vast majority of cases true. Two, say this is common across many schools that I visit. And three, spreading it, making sure it's an issue that's common to multiple classrooms and you have evidence from multiple classrooms is really good too. I'm just thinking about applying that to a one-on-one coaching conversation. You can definitely say this is something I struggle with a lot. You can definitely say this is common across multiple classrooms, which is the equivalent of uh, common across multiple schools. Is there a third point? The, the third one, the third one in the the department context doesn't work. Spread it across multiple staff members. Are there any other things you do for one-on-one feedback that you think helps it to yeah, land well? I, th- I think it. Do you know what? I think well, I'd, I'd add a little kind of maybe it's a fourth one or a kind of three-part B to that, um, and that's to make sure you're not just, for example, spreading it across your first and second year teachers. It's got to be you want the kind of whether high status is the right word or whatever, but you want the kind of key players. You want evidence from the key players, so it's not just like an us and them thing where yeah, yeah, yeah. well our lessons are fine, but you you know you you're like you're like a load of rubbish. You don't want that, so I try and spread read it across as many people but also as i say it was really powerful because i had the head of department and the deputy at the deputy head by the way did not look impressed at all but again what are you going to do you've got to admit it right so you know when the when the, there's a picture in front of you so this will be costing me bookings left right and center this this conversation but but, but well, anyway. it means you get bookings so, yeah. from the right schools who are who, exactly who are keen right, to face mate. the truth e- yeah. e- exactly right mate so yeah but back to your um, back to your follow-up question there so I was doing some coaching da, 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 Wednesday, maybe this week, some, something like that. No, Tuesday this week. And I had a bit of a similar thing because um, we were talking about, let me just get the right context here. Yeah, we were talking about, just give me two secs, because I want to get this exact example because it was, it was a really good one. 
Yeah, that was it. That was it, right? So we were talking about. So, um, what did you write then? So, Craig, you were trying to remember what was going on. You yeah, example, the, the, and the, you started the, to write, and you didn't write yeah, anything. But and I then got you it. Remember. It was the action. The action of writing triggered it all. I knew. I knew you it like, would. You're like, I'm, I'm going to tell my brain that I'm about to write down what the answer is, and in the act of trying to write down the answer, I will come up with the answer. Well, it was exactly great technique. Right. I'm going to try that exactly myself. Exactly right. You can use that. You can have that for free. Ollie. You can I have will. That one. Thank you. Now, what I'm going to describe, I'd be interested as a coach. You're far more experienced than better at coaching than I am also ethically I wonder whether this is the right thing to do or not but I gambled in the moment and it seemed fine right so I was coaching coaching a, a, a lady and what one of the hypothesis that I it was a good lesson but the hypothesis that I'd made was that when she'd ex- told her kids and um, she'd done this example um on the board um for and she'd said to her kids okay um i want you to copy this uh, i want you to copy the example down in your books and then i want you to have a go at the uh, at, at a related example and the topic was um calculating interior angles of, of polygons right so the thing she'd done on the board is she'd written the formula first so she'd gone for like n subtract 2 multiplied by 180 where n was the number of sides and no mathematician's gonna be loving this by the way then the next line she'd done like if it was a seven-sided shape seven subtract 2 in brackets multiplied by 180 and then she'd written the final answer and she'd put degrees so she'd done one example, kids had copied it down, and then she said, right, you have a go on this one. My hypothesis was, I don't reckon kids are going to set it out the way she wants them to set it out, because she'd not done two things. She'd not emphasised that, that I want to see this line, then this line, then this line, but also she'd not done what I call step-by-step, which is what we went on to in the coaching session, where with the first we do, I say, the only thing I want to see on your whiteboards is that first line, three, two, one, show me. The only one thing I want to see now on your whiteboards is the second line, three, two, one, show me. So because she hadn't done that, my hypothesis was, yeah, I'm going to see all sorts in books. And indeed I did. I see some kids who just put the answer down. Some kids really interestingly had written the formula, but not put the brackets around it. So they had N subtract two multiplied by 180. They're banging it in the calculator because of order of operations. They're getting the wrong answer. It was all kicking off, right? So in the coaching session, I had lots of positive things to say. I told her my hypothesis and then I showed her these pictures and she was really down all, you know, she was like, oh God, what? You must think I'm rubbish. You must think I'm stupid, blah, what a stupid thing to do, blah, blah, blah. So I said, look, listen, if you'd have come into my classroom, I guarantee probably up to about three years ago, you'd have seen this all the time because I, I, I didn't know the importance of this. So she started feeling a little bit better. And then said, you know, I see this all the time. Don't don't you worry about that. She's feeling a bit bad, but she's still down. She's still down. So then I said, and this is the potentially unethical bit, said, do you know what? I've seen this three times today, you know, and I've seen it. I'm not going to mention names, but I've seen it in colleagues who I bet you wouldn't be able to tell me which, which classrooms they are because they're much more experienced than you are and blah, blah, blah. So listen, you're not on your own with this. So let's get it sorted now and blah, blah, blah. And that seemed to make that third bit of, all right, it's not just you in this school. It doesn't doesn't matter if there's 100 teachers around the country. There's something about it's not just you in this department that's, you know, got this thing. So I think that's a bit of a version of it. That seems to be quite an important part of the process, if, if that makes sense. Now, I think had I said... Yeah, it was Tom. He's absolutely useless. Wait to see some pictures from his lesson. I think that might have been a bit problematic. But kind of just alluding to the fact that, you know, there are other people, I think made a bit of a difference. So, yeah, I'm interested in your take on that. Yeah. 
That's that's great. I mean, it, I think it would only be unethical if you were lying and you hadn't actually seen it three times that day. But um, <laughs> yeah. but but, but, it, but as long as you did see it three times that day, um, I think that's a really great way to put it. And I and I can see how that would have had a a positive impact impact on the way she saw that. And I agree. There's there's something there's something about it being someone in your school because that's that's who you compare people to and you know if you say I've seen this about lots of other schools they might say yeah but not in schools like my school it's in other schools yeah exactly you know? but that's that's great thanks Craig I really appreciate um, I think this has been a great takeaway um, starting off with the critical evidence at the department level and kind of finishing with some some kind of nuance and some ideas about how to deliver feedback in a really really thoughtful and gentle way um, has been super valuable for me and I'm sure many listeners. But I'm only doing this all because from our discussions, right? So as I say, like 18 months ago, I was just watching lessons coming up with absolute crap I was talking about. So now now I've got this kind of more concrete model and the fact that it got rehearsal in there. It's, yeah, just making a difference. No, it's I'm great, enjoying mate. it. I'm enjoying it's it. It's great. Right, mate, what have you got for us next? All right. This is this is an interesting one. This is I, I'm challenge I'm challenging in this case a challenging an idea that has gone far and wide. Okay, Ooh. and this is the idea of. Well, first of all, I've got to preface this. I love Dylan William. Um, I've learned oh, as God. much as much from him, if not more, from him than uh, any other educator. <laughs> And I think he's a genius. And I'm actually having him on the podcast in a couple of weeks, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him this question as well. Um, but I'm not convinced about the idea of making feedback detective work. So oh. for for listeners who who have haven't heard about this idea, this is the basic idea. It does come from Dylan William, part of his kind of formative assessment techniques, um, which are fantastic. And like I think one of the best PD programs you can buy is his embedding formative assessment program. So don't not buy it because of this um, or not use it because of this. But the basic idea is that making feedback detective work somehow helps students to learn more from it. So some examples of this could be, um, you know, you might give feedback to a group of students at the same time on their essays, but you might give them each, you know, four bits of feedback and say, here's feedback for all four of you, one's for each person. Your job is to work out which feedback is for which person. Another one might be saying something like, you know, you, you might have just done a starter, a few questions, or it might be a, a test or something or a quiz, and you give a student a piece of paper, their, their thing back and say, you got eight out of 10. I want you to find your mistakes and fix them. Um, so that's a couple of examples, and that's the idea of turning into detective work. I hope I'm representing that correctly, not arguing against a straw man, but that's my understanding. Um, I just, I'm, I don't see how this helps students in the most efficient way or in a way that even i mean it might it might scaffold or support um some sort of orientation towards self-assessment which may have some longer-term benefits like if students can critically appraise their own work potentially i think there's probably better ways to do that though like making it explicit you're trying to develop those skills and in my experience of trying these things students just get really frustrated and they're like why aren't you telling me what i'm getting wrong like what, and, and from a kind of a cognitive load perspective, you know, students only have so much cognitive capacity to, to allocate to acting on feedback. And if you ask them to, you know, utilize a lot of that finding the mistake in the first place, you know, cognitive capacity plus time in the lesson, if you're getting them to allocate a lot of that to working out which, where the mistake was, uh, they, that leaves less time and potentially less cognitive capacity to actually focus on ameliorating that, that error. Um, so I, I, I'm really 
I've been pondering this for a little bit and throwing it around in my mind. I can't, I can't yet, I'm going to say yet, I can't yet see the benefits of this over not making feedback detective work. But I would love for you to convince me otherwise. And I would love for Dylan to convince me otherwise in, in two weeks' time when I interview him. Um, but I, I wanted to throw it to you, you, you yeah, today, Craig. It's a good one, this, mate. So I've got a bit of an investment in this in the sense that, so I I was um, I was at a talk been about two years ago I, I was doing a session and Dylan was was um, doing a session before me so I came early obviously to make sure I, I watched watched him in action and he, he did this idea of, of uh, making feedback detective work and I loved it I absolutely loved it right so whenever I started my tips for teachers podcast Dylan was one of my first guests and I when I emailed him I said please can you do the detective work tip because I, I absolutely love it now I am a fan of it all and I'm gonna tell you two reasons why I think it it's worth doing okay so and I'll preface this with I can only talk about it in a maths context so the way I typically use it or have I've tried it is let's say that um, kids have done like a 10 question low stakes quiz on a range of different topics um, or they've done a homework let's let's just keep it simple it's a 10 question homework and so on so I'll give them a score eight out of 10, seven out of 10, but I won't have shown them which questions they've got right and which questions that they, they, they've got wrong. And I'll give them the books back or their sheet of paper back. And I'll say either typically with your partner or it does tend to work. This will be the only time I, I venture beyond working with two people. This this is quite well good for group work. If you've got a table of four or something, I'll then say, okay, you've got all your scores. Let's see if you can work together and figure out and come up with the perfect set of, of 10 answers, okay? Now I'll tell you two, so that's the context I've used there, and I'll tell you two reasons why I think it's quite effective, okay? And as I say, this is just my use case um, of it. So the first is, it stops, at, it's an incredibly effective way of stopping kids just looking at their score, looking at their mate's score, and then just not doing anything else. And again, I've been through many years where I've written loads of reams of written feedback and it's been a waste of time because kids are only bothered about two things, their score, their mate's score, and anything else is a hassle to get them to engage in it. This forces them to look really carefully at each of their answers and compare it to their partner's answers. So in terms of getting them to engage more in their work and be a bit more reflective, I found it quite powerful for that. The second thing I found it quite useful for is for stimulating kids to discuss their work. Because again, what's happened in the past for me, and maybe this is just because I'm crap, is that kids have said, oh, I've got seven out of 10. Oh, you've got eight out of 10. All right, brilliant, let's crack on. What they don't do is say, oh, which one did you get right? Which one did you get wrong? Well, typically they don't do that. But with this, they're forced to do that, right? Well, I've got seven out of 10, I've got eight out of 10. Right, let's see if we can match them up. Which answers have we got the same? Oh, you've got different for three. Does that mean you're right or I'm right? Let's have another look at that. So in terms of getting kids to have a productive discussion, I think it can be quite powerful for that. So my, that's my use case, and that's my two reasons why I think it's worth uh, worth pursuing. What's your thoughts on that? Cool, super interesting. Thanks, Craig. So, so your two ones were your two ones were it gets them to think about it more, which I think is a really important to actually cognitively process that that work more deeply and the second one was to have productive discussions around it um i guess i'm 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 wondering and i'll return to a concept that dylan has um helped me to understand more deeply in the context of education that's the idea of opportunity cost and i agree that um 
the protocol you've just talked about in terms of saying you've made three mistakes, you've made two, work in a group, work it out kind of a thing, could get them to think about it more than just giving them back a fully marked piece of work. Um, but I'm not convinced that it's more effective than, for example, uh, another technique that you're you, you're a fan of yourself, Craig, and that you talked about in Tips for Teachers, um, which is getting students to create like a retrieval card based upon an error, right? And if you've got, you know, not an not a unlimited amount of time in the classroom, say you've got 10 minutes that you want students to spend or five minutes even that you want students to spend getting better at something that they struggled with a little bit in the in the quiz, I think it would be much more effective to say, you got this question incorrect. I'd love for you to go back to this part of the textbook reread this section and um, and make a retrieval card based upon it that explains, you know, what the mistake you made, the concept, and has a positive example. I think that would be a much more productive use of five minutes than three minutes or two, two minutes of them comparing the answers to the next person next to them, trying to find which answer they got incorrect, and then doing... I, I guess you said come up with a, like a full set of answers in the middle, which could be productive but then that also means some students are working on things that they already know so that's probably not as good of, of a use of time I would have I would have thought so that's my that's that's my thinking so far yeah, what, what I, you, think, what you, what I think that's valid yeah and I, I think thinking about best use of time is is always a smart way to to frame this I guess there's, there's a couple of things here one there's an argument I guess for a little bit of variety sometimes that it's the, the thing with the review cards is that I'm and again I'm saying this is a huge fan again this is an idea that, that that I took from you you don't get that same collaboration aspect that you do with the with the detective work thing and I think there is a decent argument to be made that it's important to get a bit of collaboration you know you know what I'll and this is a for a separate separate uh, conversation that, that we'll have perhaps in the future one thing I'm noticing in in the vast majority of schools I get kids aren't visit kids aren't talking to each other you know in maths lessons there's kids go through entire maths lessons not not saying a word to each other and it just feels to me that that's that's problematic mm-hmm. and again to go to from an efficiency um, argument that just doesn't like if you've got you know you've got a kid thirty kids potentially the only person they talk to in a lesson is the teacher versus lots of opportunities for a turn and talk, rehearsal and so on. It just feels like if we can get kids talking to each other, that's a useful thing for, for their learning. And this for me feels like it's a way to, it's quite a structured way to get kids talking to each other. They've got a very clear goal. It's not just a wishy-washy conversation. It's turn to the person next to you or your group and your task is to compare answers with a defined goal to try and come up with a complete set of answers. So I think there's there's an argument to, 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 um, to be made for it there. There's also, and again, whether this is a bit wishy-washy, I don't know, but the fact that I, I still think there's mileage, and I go back to Sammy Kempner on this one, and I know you you interviewed him and you're a big fan of his work. If you're a kid who sat there with 10 out of 10 and your partner's got 6 out of 10, it's very easy to say, well, the 10 out of 10 kid's going to do nothing. He's just going to say, have a look at my sheet here. Just copy down my answers you got wrong and so on and so forth. But if you do what Sammy talks about and you hold that kid to account and you say, all right, if you're sat there with 10 out of 10 or 9 out of 10, you know what I'm going to do here. I'm going to ask your mate who's got 6 out of 10 to talk me through these questions. And if he can't, you're in trouble. Then all of a sudden, that I think is a useful challenge 
perhaps not more useful than, you know, working on some problem solving or something like that. But that idea of trying to explain to somebody else in a way, perhaps coming up with a different representation, I think that's a useful thing. And I think this idea of getting kids to reflect on their work compared to a partner via this detective work mechanism can be a useful thing. And the final thing I'll say on this is, and again, I don't know the answer to this. I, when I first heard Dylan pitch it, he pitched it in the first use case you described, which was comparing essays. I don't know whether potentially it works better for something like that than it does in perhaps maths, where there's kind of right or wrong answers, where kids can essentially just kind of copy down their answer from their, their mate. I don't know, but I get the feeling maybe it works better in, in, in more extended responses. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah interesting. So uh, first of all, I agree with vast majority of what you just said the two the two main points i would take out of what you just said were one like students talking to each other about mathematics is like both productive and just nice like to, to have classrooms where there is a true culture of learning and students are working with each other is like extremely powerful and the second one relating to the sammy kempner stuff yeah like peer teaching is one of the most powerful things you can unlock in your classroom i think and i think it's probably something we don't talk about enough um Coming back to the the theme of this, this my second takeaway though is I think you don't necessarily need to turn feedback into detective work to achieve either of those ends, and I think there are potentially better ways to do it. That like there's just that this detective work thing. I think there's a necessary there's a necessary loss of time at the start where we're like figuring out, and you know you could end up with, I mean maybe, maybe this is productive. I don't, I'm not sure, but you could end up with two students arguing about something about mine's correct no mine's correct and then the incorrect student convinces the correct student that they've actually done it the the wrong way and then they end up both doing it you know so that there's just these kind of things that come with that detective work idea that i think are potentially counterproductive where you could actually hand back the marked work and say you know Harry got these ones correct. Josie got these ones correct. Can you work together? And we're going to have another quiz in three minutes and, or five minutes and see if you can both get similar questions right. So, but, but that being said, there is maybe there's something. And, and I think if you can really model uh, what Neil Mercer would, would call collaborative talk and, and, you know, getting students to provide reasons and justifications for their work, I think possibly you could get optimal outcomes through that if over time they're, they're really supported to have those conversations in which case you could just say like work together and, and work it out and that would probably work because you wouldn't get the you would you would be less likely to get the incorrect student convincing the correct student because they're going deeper and talking about the rationale and saying oh but what about this counter example and if we change this number to this number would that then would your method still work? Oh, actually, no, you're right. My method wouldn't work. How, do, how can we actually check that? Let's try to solve the problem in three ways and see if we get the same answer. So like, if, if they're at that level, I think it can be like phenomenally effective. Um, but if not, I think this approach introduces some potential challenges that you know aren't necessary if the ends if the goals are to get students chatting and to get them thinking more and, and, and get some peer teaching going. So I think that's still where I th sit on it. But uh, but you've helped me to understand some of the some of the benefits of using this as a mechanism to some of those ends. I think I'll be really interested what Dylan's take is on this. We'll, we'll give this a, a little plug then. Also, you're interviewing him fairly soon, and what's what are you interviewing him for? What's the kind of yeah? Theme of, theme um, of the I'm, I'm interviewing um, Aaron Hamilton and Dylan William. Um, John Hattie was also a co-author of their 
their, their recent book. It was the de-implementation de- guide for schools, you know, which, you know, classic Dylan William, he's, he's talked about for a long time. You know, you can't ask teachers to do more 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 things without taking something away from them or sometimes th- teachers have to stop doing good things to make space to doing for doing even better things is, is one way you like to put it and so he's actually like codified that a little bit now and put it into a book um which is you know has some really fantastic ideas about in it and I, I look forward to unpacking it with him 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 and aaron nice it's tough interviewing two people i find right it's i, I always find that dynamic quite quite challenging and yeah yes so i'll be interested how you navigate that one as well mate thank you so will i <laughs> it'll be good it'll be right mate should i do my my next one so this was going to be on my number one um mm-hmm. so we'll see where this goes ollie lovell are you aware of the daring effect? Are you onto this? D E R R I N G. No, I'm I'm, I'm aware of the Darrow effect, but uh, not the daring effect. Okay, you're gonna love this, right? So this, I came across this, um, I think on Twitter X, blah blah blah, um, and I've, I'm a little bit obsessed with this now. So I've I've read a few papers on it and so on, and I've started my initial experimentation with it. Okay. So the daring effect is about using mistakes in teaching, but in a very specific way. So a common way teachers might use mistakes is they may make a mistake and get the kids to try and explain it, or like Michael Pershing does with his worked examples, there'll be an incorrect work example and students will have to self-explain where where you know where they've gone wrong and so on and so forth. That isn't this, okay? So the daring effect, it's short for deliberate errors. Okay, deliberate erroring is kind of put those two together. So the idea is you give kids a question and you ask them not to get the right answer, but to make essentially plausible mistakes that other kids could make. Two plausible errors. And there's been quite a few studies on this to suggest that it's even more effective than getting kids to come up with alternate right answers. That there's something about this coming up with kind of, you know, plausible wrong answers that whenever they then test for retention and understanding further on, further down the line, seems to be incredibly beneficial. Now, the initial studies have been done in um, translations. So you'll give kids like a word in French and say, what is essentially a plausible incorrect translation of this word and you can already see right why this is going to be quite a beneficial thing to do because you've got to show that you know what the right answer is but then also kind of preempt where other kids may go wrong and so on and so forth now why this is particularly interesting to me is obviously with my work with diagnostic questions i'm obsessed with plausible wrong answers and one thing i'll regularly do with diagnostic questions is let's say we've figured out the correct answer is A, I'll say to kids, well, why might somebody think B is the right answer? Why might somebody think C is the right answer? But this is taking it one step further because kids are challenged to generate those wrong answers. Okay, so I've got a, I've got a few quotes here and then I'm going to give you a challenge. You're going to you're going to tap into this daring effect yourself, mate, right? So I've got it here. So I'll put the links to these papers in the in the show notes. So you've got this, this first paper here is 2021 by Sarah Shihui. And it says the daring effect, I'll just quote this for you, deliberately committing errors, even when already one already knows the correct answer, produces superior learning than avoiding them, particularly when one's errors are corrected. And then there's a follow-up study that, again, I'll, I'll quote, uh, I'll uh, link to, because here they've got a lovely quote. You can imagine the author's been well happy when they came up with this. You ready for this one? 
To err is human, to deliberately err is divine. It's good, isn't it? That? So to err <laughs> is human, to deliberately err is divine. Okay. <laughs> but the key thing is here, these errors, they can't just be random errors, right? You've got to think of plausible wrong answers that kids may have. So the way I've been experimenting with this is I'll give kids a question. And bear in mind, this is after they've been taught the right way to do something. You don't want to be opening up with this, right? So you want to kind of get them familiar with the procedure. Perhaps they've done a bit of fluency practice. on. This could even be like an end of lesson activity or over like a little assessment activity or something like that. Okay, now let's see if you can come up with plausible wrong answers. So a classic example might be, you know, two thirds plus one fifth come up with two plausible wrong answers that kids may come up with and explain why, right? But I've got a better challenge for you all, right? So I've got a bank of about 60,000 maths diagnostic questions um, on my diagnostic questions in an ED website. I've got data on those questions. And what I, what I tend to do um, every now and again is I'll look at a question that's been answered like 30, 40,000 times. I'll look at the data on the, the answers that kids have gone for. And if there's a wrong answer that hardly anyone's picking, I'll think, can I improve that with a, with a better answer? So I've got a question here that's been through kind of three or four iterations, and it's at the stage now where there are three wrong answers that are really commonly chosen. So you're going to do the, we're going to test you, see if you can do the, tap into this daring effect. So I'm going to give you the question, mm -hmm. and I want you to see if you can come up with the three most plausible wrong answers, okay? All right. now, I've pitched it at your kind of level here, Ol. Oh, it's uh, mental arithmetic, two Extremely digits, low. right? Okay, so, yeah. okay. <laughs> okay. So the question is, and listeners can play along at home here. What is 10 more than 43? What is 10 more than 43? Now, I'll tell you the right answer, Al. 53 is oh, correct, goodness, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm not interested in that. Three plausible wrong answers, the top three. What do you reckon? Okay, well, first thing that comes to mind, also, like, this is not, this is not a familiar area for me at all. This is more like primary maths, I would say. Um, doesn't mean if you doesn't mean excuses if you are coming out. No, here. doesn't mean if you picked a secondary one, I'd be able to do any better. But I'm I'm th this is a fun challenge because like this isn't yeah, something yeah, that yeah. I've ever taught or actually seen a kid be taught. So this is yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna guess that some students would say fifty because it's okay. the next ten. Okay. Um, you're managing your teacher tail extremely well here, Craig. Yeah, I know. Um, I know. another one. 10 more. Honestly, I'm, I'm really struggling here, Craig. 10 more than 43. Give us one more. Give us one more. Your audio's not frozen. This is just all I'm no, thinking I'm just, about. No, I have this. frozen, Craig. Um, <laughs> well, so I'm, I'll just, I'll try to do a think aloud. So I'm thinking Go 10, 10 more. I mean, I, I'm thinking it's, it's unlikely they're going to do or well, they might go the other way because they might think that you know, they've kind of might swap, swap swap it around. So they might have thirty three mm -hmm. because they might go the opposite way mm -hmm. rather because they get okay. the more. Um, similarly, they well, are they yeah. The next ten is fifty. Uh, rather than ten more, what could they do? Um, th maybe they'll think it's something to do with ten and three, thirteen. I don't know. That's pretty weak. Um, <laughs> or the 10 and the 4. I can't keep a poker it's face with that. 14. No, I'm just doing a horrendous job. Honestly, Kay, I'm really struggling here. I would I would love right. to be okay. enlightened. All right. So, I'll tell you, it's interesting this because... So, I, I want to 
we, with um, diagnostic questions in ED, we've we've um, we've got this big research grant. So this is one of the things I want to research: just how effective is this, right? Because you can imagine a really simple experiment with this, right? You you give a kid a question, um, classic A B test. One kid gets the the choice of the four answers and has to you know choose what the right one is. Another kid doesn't get the four answers but has to generate the plausible wrong answers you know maybe there's another condition where they have to explain the answers that are already given and so on and then we retest you know two weeks later do this for ten thousand kids is this effective so it's really easily testable that's what i quite like about this but my initial kind of anecdotal small scale experiments have been quite positive and i was doing a cpd session last night with a load of primary teachers and it was really interesting their wrong answers really differed by the phase that they taught again it's pretty obvious when you say it out loud right so teachers of six-year-olds were coming up with plausible wrong answers that teachers of 11-year-olds were coming up with different ones and and, and so on and so forth anyway i'll give you the top i'll give you the top three you ready for these mm-hmm. so i'm sad to don't, say don't, don't explain them to me i don't explain them to me i need i want to right. see if i can actually work out okay. how students got that as well all right to, start, so none to of in some way redeem all. myself yeah i know, I know. <laughs> So none of yours have made it in all, but that's not to say they're not good ones. So don't don't give up. Don't give up there. Right. They're just not so, okay. the best ones. So, so just to remind listeners of the questions, what is 10 more than 43? So one of them is 44. Okay. So what have they okay. done there? All right. Uh, well, they just heard the words more than 43 and they went to the next one, yeah. maybe. I think so. So we we collect kind of student explanations on the site, and that tends to be the the, the kind of common one. And um, the odd kid has got a bit of a place value issue that they've you know lined it up, lined up the ten and put the the one under the units and so on. But yeah, it typically tends to be they've just kind of latched onto more than so they've done the next one. Okay, this is a good one. So ten more than forty three is the question. Four hundred and thirty. Okay. Yep. Multiplied instead of added. Yeah, so 10 lots of 43 mm-hmm. they've, they've gone for. That's a good one. And my favourite one, see if you can get your head around this. 10 more than 43, 52. Hmm. This is the most common one as well. This is the most common one. Yeah, it's good, wow. hey? I knew you'd like this one. Okay, 52. Primary How teachers you- will be screaming. Primary teachers are just yelling here. Like, yelling at me being like this? Oliver yeah. how do you not know this I yeah, thought you knew you, about your math secondary teaching bar, your secondary bu- you're in your secondary bubble your high school bubble well that was the thing when you were like initially like 10 more than 43 I was like how do you not know that <laughs> you know it's yeah, yeah. okay um oh oh I don't know I'm looking at maybe they well if you if you add the one and the no I don't know no. I've added it, I've added you, to one, take, one. Take me out of my misery, please, Craig. All right. So this is a classic primary school error, this. And I only know this from reading loads of responses on the site. They start their counting on 43. So they go 43, 44, 40. So oh. they don't count the jumps. They start their counting on the number. So they always yeah, end okay. up one less than the answer should be. So it's good, hey? So just to kind of circle oh, wow, us back to, to the initial idea here. So you can give kids any question, an open response question, and ask them to think of one or two ways where kids may have gone wrong and to justify why. Or you can use, which I think is quite nice, a pre-existing high-quality multiple-choice question and get kids to try and generate the wrong answers before they see them. And then it's almost like a big reveal, right? And it's quite nice. Like, if, if you've got one of the wrong answers, great. 
tick, you feel good. If you've got a different wrong answer, well, okay. Who's got something different here? Explain why, that could be a good thing to do. And then, of course, if nobody's got one of the answers that's there, can anybody figure out where it's come from? So it just feels to me like it's quite a good kind of teaching kind of strategy anyway. And you can imagine a bit of paired discussion coming into play here. Show your partner, your put your answers between your partner. If you've got the same, is it for the same reason? If you've got a different, can your partner explain why and so on? Just feels there's a bit of potential. As I say, it's early days for me with this daring affair, but I'm quite excited about it. What do you reckon to that all? That's great. Well, I think... I think to listeners, something else this section is hopefully a good illustration of is the importance of like actual experience and knowledge when it comes to effective teaching. So often yeah. often something we say in terms of giving teaching advice is like try to preempt misconceptions for students, like mm. work out what confusion they're going to have and like head them off, right? But it's it's like I wasn't able to generate any of those uh, misconceptions nor explain the most common one right and that's because i have essentially like very very limited i think i taught one primary lesson once right and so someone 10 years of math teaching experience wasn't able to do that and that's because i haven't got ex that experience in that area and so i think it's also hopefully a bit relaxing to some teachers to say okay well um I'm not meant to know everything in my first year of teaching and it actually takes multiple years. And it's another reason why, you know, Dylan William talks about you get 50% faster growth in teaching effectiveness if someone is able to teach the same subject slash year yeah. two years in a row because it takes time to get your head around these, um, these what these misconceptions actually are. So that's one thing I'm taking out of, of that passage and, and hopefully other people um, can take from it too. So, uh, look, I think this, uh, this is really interesting Interesting, Craig, and I like that quote: "To err is human; to deliberately err is divine." Um, and I, you know, I deliberately um, err every month in producing the Err podcast, which is how people Very sometimes nice. <laughs> <Nicely> <laughs> sometimes people pronounce the the E triple R in that way. Nonetheless, a couple of couple of comeback questions. I th I'm wondering mm -hmm. if if any of the studies you came across uh, did like long term delay testing of of the of the knowledge yeah it tends from from again there's there's only really two biggies that are out there and it tends to be a couple of weeks tends to be mm -hmm. what they're what they're going for here so okay. yeah i don't know any longer than that that's pretty good because because the the finding in some ways kind of contradicts some other research i've come across i'm like i'm sure that's just one paper though and it sounds like you've there's there's a wealth of research mm -hmm. here but it's just interesting some of the stuff i read was about uh people who do true or false tests on various concepts uh, and then are tested and immediate testing, the, tr the true false tests improve their knowledge of the concept. I can't remember, it was something something to do with activism like climate change facts or something. But in a, if you tested them a number of weeks later, their, their knowledge had reverted to its original state, like their original beliefs on the topic, and they were more confident about it because they knew they'd done an a true false test on it, <laughs> right? So that that was interesting. Interesting, that yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, look, I think it's really interesting, and I haven't looked into this area enough, Craig. And it sounds like um something really, really worth um worth exploring further. Yeah, I think so. And again, just to circle back to, I think you made a really good point there, all about how difficult it can be to preempt where students are likely to struggle and that's that i think that's one of the unsung benefits of a multiple choice question like 
if you're about to teach something, and I'll, I'll always say, you know, go on diagnostic questions or ED, but, you know, you can go anywhere. If, if there's a good bank of diagnostic questions, you know, that have got high quality distractors, to have a look at those in advance of teaching and think, why might somebody think that's the right answer? It's a good way to kind of shortcut a bit of experience. So you don't have to like do what I did of go through, you know, five, six, seven years of teaching something, of seeing kids make actual mistakes and then trying to preempt them. In fact, you can kind of preempt them ahead of time by looking at multiple choice questions. I think that's quite, a, as I say, a bit of an unsung use of of good multiple choice questions. Definitely. And, and, it, and it covers what Lee Shulman uh, called the missing paradigm in teacher education, which is like, the it's the curriculum stupid it's like actually looking at what are we explicit like what are the actual knowledge and skills that we're teaching students and are we giving teachers the knowledge they need of that content to be the most effective teachers that they can be um and so yeah maybe that's your next book craig uh misconceptions about specific topics in different mathematical areas that teachers should know or something like that <laughs> catchy catchy, catchy. Love it. right oh what have you got what's your last one today so hopefully this is an interesting one. I think I think we often, I, I definitely often talk about, you know, what we've gotten better at in teaching. And, you know, one of your big books, How mm-hmm. I Wish I Taught Maths, is essentially predicated on that idea. It's like I used to do these things, potentially not that well, and now I do these things and, and it's better for X, Y, Z reason. Um, but I think we rarely talk about what we've gotten worse at over time as teachers. And this is something that I've been thinking about a little bit recently. It's like, you know, I, I feel like my, my knowledge has improved in so many areas and much of my teaching classroom management, you know, uh, running starters, so many different things, checking for understanding. But I think there's also a few things that I've potentially lost over the years that I had early on in my career that, that, I, haven't, um, that I haven't been doing as well more recently and that has actually made me uh, not not necessarily net worse of a teacher, hopefully not net worse of a teacher, but definitely if I was still doing those things, I think I would be a better teacher. And so um, oh, wow, okay. I'm going to ask you this question, Craig, what's something that you think you've got worse at um, in a moment? I'll share one thing that I think I've got worse at and that is I think that in my earlier years, I had a much more of an openness and I... Uh, and I invited kind of feedback from students much more frequently. Like I would give end of term surveys to students and say like, you know, what's something I'm, I should keep doing, what's something I should stop doing, what's something I should start doing. I would like show the results up on graphs and like have a classroom discussion about it. And I think that that openness and that modeling of openness to improvement and openness to feedback did a lot for my relationship with my classes and a lot for uh, how they saw me as someone who was really valuing valuing them as contributors to the classroom and things like that. I think I think as I progressed in, well, as I have progressed in my teaching career and become more confident that the things that I am doing are like research informed and like effective ways to do things and re- read more research on, you know, often students, their judgments of their learning are pretty, pretty off um, and they, they, they struggle to know what's good for them. You know, the Dr. Fox experiment and things like that are pretty pretty great examples where people basically, if they're entertained, they think they're learning. If, 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 if they're not entertained, they think they're not learning. And, and other, other research that suggests that students prefer teachers who 
go easy on them rather than actually help them to learn more, things like that. It's it's made me value or, or not, not solicit feedback from students as frequently. But I think actually there's probably like a middle ground there. I think I think you can probably have both uh, and, and not lose anything along the way because it might also, you know, if students suggest things that you think are counterproductive, it actually provides an opportunity to like talk about that and explain why you do it that way and talk about some of the costs and benefits and things like that. So I think that's I think that's one thing. I think there's probably a few other things that I, I am not as good at or am significantly worse at uh, as my my career has progressed. But I, I was curious to um, prompt listeners to have a little bit of a think about this. You know, what are, what are some of the things I used to do that were that helped me to be a good teacher in my first years and could I bring th- some of those things back? And, and I also wanted to, to, to turn the question on you, Craig, and see if there's something that comes to mind for you. It's a brilliant question, mate. It's, it's not a question I've asked myself before. It's, it's, it's a really, really, really good question. And it goes back again, I think, to what you were referencing before with Dylan, that again, often there's a bit of an opportunity cost to things. You you, you start doing something else that's potentially an improvement, but, but the cost of that is the thing that you stop doing that, that again, may also have been potentially effective. So I'll pre- I've got two that have sprung to mind immediately here. I'll preface these with the fact that, of course, I don't teach regularly um, these days, so I won't see the same kids every single week and so on and so forth. But one of which I can certainly relate to because it happened to me last week, and the other of which I can think about when I, when I had my last kind of full teaching timetable, I think this was already starting to kind of go a little bit worse. So I'll, I'll talk about both of those. So the first thing is, I think I'm a lot worse at being open to trying different kind of activities, resources, and types of things. So early on in my career, I was potentially too open, right? Anything that looked bright and shiny, I'd give it a go. Towards the kind of, over the course of the first kind of 15 years of teaching, I became quite closed-minded. And a lot of that was because I started to think about opportunity cost. I started to think about... Dan Willingham, what are the kids actually thinking about? So all the cutting activities, all that kind of thing just went. And it was very much the most effective way to do this is probably to give you 10 questions, have a go at it, me solicit feedback and me respond accordingly, right? Whereas last week I walked into a lesson and it was a year 10 lesson. So 14 and 15 year olds and they had a card sort and they were matching up um, equations of straight line graphs with the the actual graphs themselves. And I saw the cards and immediately I'm thinking, inefficient, ineffective, better ways of doing this, blah, blah, blah. But then I walked around and the discussions the kids were having and the way they were grabbing the cards and moving them and saying, no, that can't go there, that's there. I couldn't have generated that. I couldn't have generated that with 10 questions. So I think I'm a lot more closed-minded. And of course, the lethal mutation of that is the kids, you know, you do a card sort every lesson. They're not high quality. Kids spend ages cutting up the messing around with scissors and so on but this wasn't that this was a really high quality task and i i, I don't think I'm, I'm as good as i used to be at, at being open to those different ways of doing things so, so that would be one and the second one is related to something you've said do you know what? it's hard hard for me to say this you know i think if i picked up a class now i don't think i would potentially have as good a relationship with them now as I had with classes in my first few years. I don't think I'm as fun these days. Now, of course, the offshoot of that is you don't want to be too fun. Kids, as you've said, think they learn well from fun to blah, blah, all that kind of thing. But what I'm talking about here is I think I potentially could strike a bit of a better balance. So I, I used to do a thing at the end of lessons for about the first 10 years of teaching. Fizz buzz, we might have even talked about this before, right? This is the this thing where 
you go around the room and kids say one, two, three, four. Like first kid says one, second kid says two, third kid says three, and so on. But the twist is every time it's a multiple of three, they say fizz. Every time it's a multiple of five, they say buzz. If it's a multiple of three and five, they say fizz buzz. And then I had all sorts going on. If it was a prime, they said plop. There was I was chucking in rules left, right, and center, right? Kids absolutely love this. They learned very little. Like it was from a pedagogy perspective, it was horrendous. But those five minutes. I think meant that the next lesson, if there was something a bit painful and hard, I could probably get the kids through it because either they knew a bit of fizz buzz was coming or they remembered the fizz buzz or they, you know, enjoyed it a bit. I don't know, something like that. I think I, I don't think I do that these days because I think I want to get, every, I want to squeeze every bit of learning out of every single minute. So again, it's another example of me being a little bit more closed-minded, I think. But this time, I think it would to be to the detriment of the relationship potentially I would I would have with kids. But yeah, they're, they're my two just off the top of my head, mate. Yeah, that, that's that's great, Craig. And I think I probably share both of those as well. Um, yeah, I, and I think it is a, I think it's an important question and, and it's probably one that's worth bringing into rotation. I know a lot of people, and this is kind of, I guess, a bit of a segue yeah. into the, the end of the, the discussion we're going to have for patrons. But, you know, what are the kind of questions you ask yourself at the end of each year, or at the end of each term and, and to reflect on and continue to improve? I think it's a, a really interesting one to bring into the rotation that can be used for school and like in parenting and in life and in exercise and socializing with friends and things like that. Uh, you know, I used to, <laughs> something I think I've got worse at in terms of just socializing is I used to be much more, you know, bubbly and outgoing and, and um, you know, enjoy talking about anything in politics or whatever it is. And But, uh, you know, as you get older, you just, I don't know, as I've gotten older, I should speak for myself. I There's a few topics that I can get really excited about and then there's others that I'm like, oh, I don't really care. <laughs> You know, um, so so I, yeah, I think it's a it's a valuable question, and then the next one after that is is it worth bringing some of those things back, and if so, how? So um, thanks for thanks for opening this openly mate. sharing. I, I knew that you would I knew that you would uh, honestly and humbly share uh, some reflections, Craig, and I was I was keen to hear what you had to say. So say so thanks for being open to share share on that one too. Great question, that mate. Great question. Right, my final one. I don't know how you're going to take this, or we'll just see what happens. I've been right. debating what to do for this last one but I think I'm going to go for this I need your help on this alright All right. so I'm a bit obsessed with poor proxies at the moment so I wrote a post before poor proxies for listening I've done one on poor proxies for understanding and so on right I think I've got a good a good proxy where you know like if you say like what's behaviour in this school like it's quite a bit of a subjective thing right like I walk into a school I can't immediately assess how good the behaviour policy is or anything like that what the kind of school culture's like and so on but I reckon I've got a good proxy for that now mm -hmm. based on my experiences in the last few weeks mm -hmm. and that is over the course of a day how many times does a child put their hand up in lesson the teacher <laughs> thinks I've been there myself with this so the teacher asks a great question, like, you know, add these two fractions together. What's the first step? Kid puts the hand up. Teacher goes to that kid. Yeah, expecting, like, a, a good response. And the, the kid goes, can I go to the toilet? I reckon the number of times kids ask to go to the toilet over the course of the day is about the best proxy for the, whether you want to call it culture or the quality of the behavior systems in place. So I was in a school, I won't name where, um, I watched three three periods of lessons, so that each lesson was 50 minutes, so less than three hours, about two and a half hours of lessons, 31 times. 
kids asked to go to the toilet. Holy moly. Now, some kids had these toilet passes, and these were like gold dust. God knows how they got them, but they were loving them. So they were flashing these toilet passes left, right, and centre. Teacher couldn't do anything about it, right? Toilet pass, toilet pass. And kids were doing this mid-explanation. The teacher's just got the kids where they want them. Hand goes up, need the toilet, toilet pass, toilet pass. And then other kids who didn't have the toilet passes were like, oh, I'm busting, I'm busting, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go. And the thing, whereas I go in other schools, and again, in a future podcast, all I'm going to tell you about one of the best schools I've, I've ever been in. I, I went um, a few weeks ago. It absolutely blew my mind. Not a single child has to go to the toilet, right? Now, there's something going on here, right? And again, what you do, <laughs> you can't blanket ban going to the toilet. You can imagine people are going to be kicking off already about this. And I think it's already a bit of a thing on Twitter about toilets and, all. you know, you've got to respect, you know, people's need to go. And of course, there's issues of that, right? 31 times in two and a half hours, kids were asking to go to the toilet. And that school had issues with behavior, issues with behavior. So my question to you is, it's kind of a bit of a two-pronged, two-pronged one here. Um, have you noticed this? Do you think there's there's some about the amount of times kids being asked to go to the toilet is a bit of a proxy for a bit of an ind- indication of what's going on with behavior? And as a teacher, how do you solve it all? Like, what in the? I know you've, I, I certainly know you've worked in two schools for for quite a kind of significant amount of time. Maybe you've got experience from others. But what's been the kind of toilet? To, can't believe we're talking about this. What's been the toilet policy in those schools? Because it's it's a bit of a problem, right? Like, so anyway, that's that's what I just wanted to wrap up this discussion with. Toilets, go for it. Yeah, great. Bit of toilet talk on the podcast, Craig. Love that. Um, that's yeah. Okay. I think it's actually, I think it's a pretty good proxy. I'm not sure if it's the best one, but I think it is definitely a pretty good proxy for... Some in it. Yeah, maybe yeah. not behavior, but like engagement in learning, like cognitive engagement in the, in, in the actual class. Because if a mm-hmm. student's in the zone, if they're learning and they're listening, they're not asking to go to the loo. Like if, even if they're busting and they're, they're into it, they're, they're, they're just going to sit it out, right? But if they are asking, it's probably because they're sitting there, you're explaining something and they're thinking, man, this is boring. What else could I be doing? Hmm, How do I get out of this? Oh, I could go to the toilet. Hand goes up. Right. So I think it is actually a pretty good proxy for that. Um, Thinking about other other proxies, I think Greg Ashman had a blog post a few years ago. I'm, I'm just off the top of my head. I just searched my notes and I couldn't find the exact things that proxies that he had. But I can remember two of the three, I think. One was, do students listen when the teacher is talking? Another is, do they t- do what the teacher asks? And I've just, I've remembered the third one, I think. Does the does the teacher ask questions in such a way that the students don't know uh, if they're going to be called on, right? That were, I think, I think they were his three things. They're not so much behavior proxies, but they're just like on the topic of proxies, three proxies for if things are going going to if, if teaching is effective and if students are actually paying attention to it, which I think are pretty a pretty good one. So just to recap them for listeners, yeah. Do students listen when the teacher is talking, which we've talked about a lot today? Um, do students do what the teacher asks, which is pretty important? Um, and does the teacher ask questions in such a way that students don't know who was going to be called on? Uh, in, and the reason I shared that is because I'm completely trying to stall on the question of how do you solve this toilet problem because I don't have any good answers to it. <laughs> but I will say that um, this is this is a problem in a school that I was working at recently, and I remember an email going around from 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 leadership saying, "Can we please be conscious about the how frequently students are leaving 
the classroom because they are like organizing meetups at specific times in the toilets to yeah, like oh, yeah. to meet each other between classes. So they're watching the clock and that might be why at like, you know, three oh two or two oh two the student's hand goes up <laughs> like a lightning bolt and goes, Can I please go now? Because they're actually like um they've got a date. They've got somewhere to be, Craig. Um so I think, you know, potentially delay like delay and this is something that we talked about in a recent um when we were recording some online stuff for classroom management, thinking about using that as a check-in point. So if it's during independent work time, thinking about using that as an opportunity, go up to the student, look at how much they've completed or, and then setting like a goal for them. Like, can you complete up to this and then go, or can you check your answers first and then call me back and let me know how you went and then you can go something like that. So making it not such like a, a free, like, oh yeah, anytime you need to go to the loo, Blah, blah blah but actually like using that as a bit of a, a bit of leverage i guess you could say um you know assuming they're not busting or or whatever it might be uh but yeah i think i think just having <laughs> i think as with many things effective teaching where students are having success and are engaged in learning is probably the the best thing i mean you can you can make policies till the cows come home about whether you can or can't go to the toilet or how many times you can go to the toilet i mean you could you could get students to like to write it in their diary how many like or the teacher to sign their diary every time they leave the lesson doesn't have to be like you're going to the toilet but every time you leave the lesson and so the teacher can say well you've left the lesson nine times today your lesson is nine times over today is this reasonable or use that as a trigger for a review or something, but you can make policies till the the cows come home, but won't necessarily address the issue at its root cause, I think, which is something about the learning culture within the school and the way the lessons are taking place. So that would be the first thing my mind goes to. And other than that, just those two other, two other small things, like maybe recording it and, and, um, and maybe using it as leverage to, to do a little bit more work before, before then, before leaving. Do you have the answer? Super useful. I, I don't I know what the answer isn't though I've, I've got I've, I, I, so I, I saw a lesson and you could just see what was going to happen here right so kids doing the do now so they're about three minutes into the lesson and goes up need the toilet teacher lets that kid go and I just thought uh oh you're in trouble now because then every other child right can I go no no you can't but you let Alicia go all right well where, where'd you go from there so like, if you're gonna yeah the, you want to delay it as late as possible. The the intro, I often see people do, teachers do that idea of, okay, get this question right and then you can go. Again, it's you just don't want to open the floodgates, right? You don't want it to be, then the next kid goes, well, if I answer this next question, can I go? And then, you know, because they're losing five, six minutes of learning. And it's just this, like, if you're a kid and you've seen your mates go to the toilet, why on earth wouldn't you think, you know, I fancy a bit of a break here and blah, blah, blah. It's just... But again, it's the, the problem with the toilet thing, and I'm sure like Tom Bennett must have kind of addressed this. As I say, it's just something that was kind of bubbling in my mind. But the, the whole problem with the toilet thing is like how how do you prove that they're they're they you know they don't absolutely desperately need to go without it mm. being you know a very kind of embarrassing situation for for all around. It's a mm. it's a very well, tricky just, one. I know there were some people on Twitter who were like, "Come on, come on. yeah, it's so what you're going to say mean, here." But go all, for all it. you need is basically ID related swipe cards, right? So when they go to the loo, it measures the volume of fluid that they actually deposit into that's the exactly toilet. What you need. And so you know if they really did need to go or not. I think that's probably the most logical solution here, Craig. 
Let's yeah, let's patent that. That's yeah, let's let's go with that one. So I might I might just do this as a newsletter at one point and just open it out if I'm interested in different schools' policies to this mm. and also individuals teachers way and there's not going to be a quick fix solution that's going to work for everybody i'm just it just fascinates me as i say it's just in my mind now the frequency that kids ask to go to the toilet just tells me something about as you say it's probably not behavior it probably is the kind of attitude and ethos of uh, yeah views yeah. on learning i love that craig i love that can you bring Toilets. us a, pro- a, pro- a proxy <laughs> a good proxy every month please i really appreciated that i'll try <laughs> for different yeah things. love a proxy love a proxy <laughs> that's great Right, so that brings us to the end of our kind of normal normal episode. That was another good one, that all. As I say, it's been about six, six, seven weeks before we've spoken now, just with kind of Christmas and stuff. So I've, I had a load of ideas I wanted to share with you. So um, yeah, pick three out there. I've got, got a load more. I really enjoy these conversations and I hope listeners do too. So um, if you're interested in uh, more from this, stick around for Ollie's Patreon um, uh, bonus episode where we're going to do our New Year's resolutions. But as ever, I'll, what, what you plug in this month. Your book, when's your book out, by the way? Yeah, classroom management handbook. Probably in March. Probably in March. I'll definitely be hitting you mm-hmm. up, Craig, to see if you want to have a chat about it on the pod. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, we'll it's, do on, a big, it's on the way. There. We're just working through the final proofs, proofs now to make sure that all the all the changes we requested are made, and then we uh, then we'll be we're launching. I think I saw was it on Twitter or something. I saw some kind of images or something. It looks smart. It looks like it's a like a, a good looking book and stuff. Yeah, so, yeah we had we had yeah. we had Jamie well, Clark do the. About that. Had Jamie Clark do the images, and he's done a fantastic job. And he's got a few flow flow charts in there, and a few kind of icons and images relating to some of the concepts. He's done a he's done a fantastic job. So really happy with how it's looking as well. That's great. That's great. And my only plug, as ever, is just the newsletters, Tips for Teachers newsletter, and ED newsletter. So my ED one, if anyone's interested, I'm doing a series of four in a row where I'm doing developing a departmental approach to. So it's reflecting on work I've done with schools. So the first one which went live this week is developing a departmental approach to the do now. And next week is developing a departmental approach to worked examples. Then it's reviewing answers. And then it's the biggie problem solving. So just sharing some strategies we've done as a department uh, on on different things there. So yeah, as ever, you'll find links to all our stuff uh, in the show notes. And thank you so much for listening. And it's bye from me. And bye from me too. Very good. Take care, everybody.